0: Greetings, podcast listeners. We had a little more technical trouble than usual with our audio for this podcast, so there may be bits of it that aren't entirely comprehensible at the phonological level rather than at the syntactic or semantic level, as is usually the case. Sorry for any inconvenience.
1: Welcome again to Language Made Difficult, an asymmetric part of the Specgram podcast. I'm your host, David Peterson. Back again with me in the equipment closet of the John Wilkins conference room is traveling bandit Trey Jones. Hey, everybody. To his left, the man who redefined the term neck brace, Keith Slater. Great to be with you guys. And joining us live via satellite from a Vespa stuck in traffic on the Business 80 East, Bill Spruill. Hey. And also back for another entire Language Made Difficult, Tim, you pull me, I pull you. Thanks for joining us, Tim.
2: Glad to be here.
1: Uh, Though you are contractually obligated to be here, what made you decide to return for another week?
2: My flight got canceled. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I can I can assure you that we had absolutely nothing to do with that. Well, anyway, thanks for coming back. And uh, now it's time for some lies, damn lies, and linguistics. The game where the points don't matter and we don't keep score, right, uh, Trey?
0: Uh, no, we keep score and you're still in last place. So <gasps> let's begin. As usual, I have three language-related items. Two are true. And we had a little problem with this last week. So two are true. Okay. One is false. Got it. And you guys have to figure out what's what. And then we'll talk about it when we're done. So here we go. This week's theme is random weirdness. Mm. Item Number one, the Itsekiri and Okpe languages of Africa have different words like blood, fire, and firewood for use during the day or during the night. Mm. Item number two, in the Papua New Guinea language malas, you can't start a conversation with an allusion to the weather. And item number three, in the Paraguayan language Guarani, nouns can have tense. For example, leaves used for tea are marked in the past tense. All right, who wants to go first?
3: I'll go first. Okay, so I want to take them in reverse order, I think. I a Guarani example of nouns that can have tense. Nouns ought to have tense. There should be languages like this. And if you think about it, tea leaves are a great example of something that's inherently past tense because they've all been harvested before we ever run across them. This is something languages like should do, and it's right for tea leaves, and, and I'm going to call it that true, I think it is. The New Guinean language where you can't start a conversation with an allusion to the weather, and you've used this one before, Trey, I'm pretty sure, and I'm pretty sure it's true. You can't start a conversation with an allusion to the weather. So that one's true. The first one, the languages that have different words depending on whether it's day or nighttime, this is false. Studies have shown that the human brain is not capable of handling things like code switching and lexical replacement at night because it's just too tired. And so uh, this, <laughs> this is impossible cognitively, and it's got to be false.
2: Okay, sounds good. Who wants to go next? I could leap in here, pointing out that it doesn't say for number one in the question that these are human languages and that these are uh, human brains we're dealing with. And so it that was reminds not me. I mean. well, well, yes, that was that may have been a mistake on your part. Uh, it reminds me of some science fiction books I read once, the East of Eden trilogy, in which there were lizard people who fought with the humans uh, naturally and lost, as it should be. But the lizard people communicated using not just sounds but also movements and coloration and they could not communicate at night because they couldn't see what the other lizard people were doing and so it's possible that these are lizard people of some sort in number one the Itsikire and Okpe and yet having said all of that I doubt that they are lizard people and for that reason I think I agree with Keith that it would be a bit odd to use different words during the day or night whereas number two, yeah, maybe you don't want to start with an allusion to the weather that makes perfect sense to me. You might bring on bad weather or it may have been that people got so sick of that that they eventually started killing people who did that and nobody does anymore. <laughs> uh, sort of like the people who come up to you and say, hot enough for you on a day like today when it was 100 degrees, to which the answer is yes, but the penalty for saying that is death. <laughs> and Number three, yeah, that sounds reasonable to me. If fish that you eat in Spanish can have a sort of past participle marker on them, why can't nouns have past? for leaves. So much as it pains me to do it, I'm going to have to agree with Keith on this one. <laughs> okay. Who wants to go next?
1: Well, I guess I'll go next. Tim, did you say East of Eden? Sorry,
2: West of Eden. Did I say East of Eden? Uh, I may have.
1: I was thinking, no, oh, that's uh, <laughs> it's pretty adventurous for Steinbeck. Yeah, uh, you're
2: going to have to go back and read that book. <laughs> you missed the desert the people entirely in East of Eden. <laughs>
1: Oh, man. All right. I'm going to say that three is true because this is a phenomenon I've heard of before, not necessarily with this language. I think even in English we have it with ex-president or former president and then also future president. The concept is a sound one. In English we happen to use separate words, but there's no reason why you couldn't take the tense morphology from verbs and apply it to nouns. I like that. So three is true. Having a really hard time between one and two. I, I could see there being different words for a fireword, for example, at night or during the day. Because after all, I believe all you said was that there were words for this distinction. Uh, you never said that they actually used them, so they, they may not. <laughs> 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 there should be words that nobody uses.
3: Distinction competence, not performance.
1: Theoretical distinction. <laughs> Hypothetical. <laughs> It sounds a little too far-fetched. I'm going to go, even though it sounds completely stupid, because I'll learn this Papua New Guinean language, and I'll begin a, a conversation with a reference to the weather and what you're going to do about it, but whatever. Let's just say that that one is true, and number one is false. So I am falling in line with the other two. All
0: right,
4: Bill? Bill, let's see. For number three with the Paraguayan language, for the nouns to have tense, the tense markers are, should be formally identical to the tense markers, she's you no know, verbs. I know there's at least one language that does that. I think Navome did. I don't know whether E does or not, but I'm willing to believe it does. So that number three is possible. But number one, I'm also willing to believe that you would have different words for these things during the day and night. Because during the day, for example, maybe be approached fire and fire, but in terms of as opposed to light production. Number two, this does sound like something Trey has used before. I don't know if it was Malice. There are eight gazillion languages in New Guinea, so it could be false because it's true of 20 New Guinea languages, but not mass, I'm not sure. So I am going to take the approach that this one, in to the fourth trace part, and say number two is a false one. Okay. Uh, let's start with
0: number three. Everybody agrees that Paraguayan nouns can have tense, and that is true. Cool. Then I guess we'll, we'll go to number one. It is, in fact, true that these languages have no. different words for blood, fire, and firewood for use during the day and for use at night. And so, in fact, Bill is the only one who got it right. I did, in fact, make up another weather item. You accuse me of being tricky all the time, so I thought I'd be tricky. And uh, you didn't think I would do the same thing twice. And, in fact, that is a rule from a Victorian etiquette book that you shouldn't start a conversation with an allusion to the weather.
4: Ah, I can't believe that prescriptivism fooled me. Well, well, there's another way there in that it's an allusion to the weather. You figure natural languages might have some sort of politeness rule that says don't start a conversation by talking about the weather. But why prohibit just alluding to it? It's like an <laughs> indirect reference to the weather is worse than actually talking about it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, boy. I, actually, maybe that is worse. So, you, know, you just walk in and say, huh, my shirt collar seems to be Awfully moist, doesn't it?
4: Boy, Celsius would be fond of today, wouldn't he? Yeah. <laughs> Somebody comes in and starts doing passive aggressive references of the water like that, I just punch them. <laughs>
0: When I was writing this, I actually copied the wording from the Victorian Etiquette book. I was imagining something like what Tim was talking about earlier, where someone says, hot enough for you, which is an allusion to the weather, but not uh, (laughs) directly discussing it, I suppose. (laughs) Anyway, the good news is, David didn't get a point, and I did.
1: Oh, it should have to be a clean sweep for you to get a point. (laughs) Unbelievable. (sighs) We're going to have to start separating you two. (laughs) <laughs> All right. What's the score? Go ahead and give it to us.
0: Bill has is leading with 11. Uh, I've got 10. And Keith and David are tied with 8. And that's out of 18. And then our guests with the powerful leadership of Tim have fallen to 4 out of 10.
1: <laughs> 4 out of 10. Goodness. Okay. So uh, I think that we should go back and revise the scores, though, so that you don't have as many points, Trey. <laughs> because it just doesn't seem right. Uh, if even one person, you know, figures you out, nothing for you, no soup for you, says I.
4: I think
0: the scoring system is perfectly reasonable, given that the way it's it's working out here is that uh, Bill's the smart one, I'm the clever one, and then. <laughs> oh boy!
1: All right, all right. Well, anyway, <laughs> thank you for once again shaming me. I uh, am grateful to you for doing so. Next up, we have some language news, but first, a word from our sponsor.
5: How do you think Mr. Fulkingro felt when he first came to the U.S. and discovered what his name sounds like to the Americans? How about Miss Fanny Tickler, who always thought her name sounded rather cute, when she arrived in London and discovered that saying her own name aloud around children might get her arrested. Consider poor Richard Head, who, as a child, could never get the other kids to call him Reggie; They always called him Dick and made him cry. Do you want experiences like these to scar your children? Of course not. No one does. But are you fluent in English, Japanese, Spanish, Korean? German, Russian, Indonesian, French, Italian, Chinese, Arabic, and Swahili? Of course not. No one person can be. These languages are unlikely to be encountered by a well-traveled global citizen of the future. You do want your child to be a happy, well-traveled global citizen of the future, don't you? Of course you do. We have turned our years of personal experience, as linguists, as computer scientists, and as regular people whose parents made unfortunate choices, into an unparalleled service. Send us the name you are considering for your child, And we will tell you in what languages, in what countries, in what cities, your child's name will embarrass them. Every employee of the International Name Testing Service has lived with this problem personally and professionally, so your child won't have to. Can you put your trust in us? Of course you can.
1: Alright, we're back, and now for some language news. Cornell researchers have been analyzing movie quotes for centuries, but only recently have they turned up something interesting. Apparently, a phrase or catchphrase will be more memorable if it uses a familiar sentence structure but unfamiliar words. Something like, I'm going to the Blork, instead of I'm going to the store. In addition, they turned up a bit of a dubious result. Words spoken with more sounds from the front of the mouth, in quotes, are more memorable than those spoken with sounds from the back of the mouth. So, uh, this is
4: a bunch of blarney, am I right, Bill? Well, I'm trying to figure out how they're calculating this. They do have a quote in here saying, you remember things if it's if it's more specific, and a line will be less general if it contains third-person pronouns and definite articles and uses past tense. Huh. That basically applies to 90% of narrative. <laughs> On the one hand, it is likely true that the vast number of memorable lines from movies conform to that. Just like the vast number of lines from movies conform to the idea that um, it's audible, for example, (laughs) or in English. (laughs) That is kind of a match, but I I want more of a subset of that, frankly.
0: Bill, you reversed the polarity there. Those were the attributes of the things that were not memorable.
4: Oh uh, that's the part uh, I remember. <laughs> 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 that was the catchy part of that article.
0: <laughs> but it did describe the third person pronouns using third person pronouns. The descriptions were very general. So that's why you remembered it, but not the line before, which actually <laughs> did actually have definite articles and stuff and made it less memorable. <laughs>
4: So, so what There's the thing. if you really want it to be memorable, do something that people don't normally do, like use the future perfect progressive passive.
0: No, it should be in the Those present tense.
4: Those are the tense. droids we will have been having driven about.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you want to use the present tense. First or second person pronouns are probably good. And you want to avoid definite articles because they refer to specific things.
1: So like, maybe something like, you'll be on an edge of your seat? Well, obviously...
0: okay. I think one obvious application of this technology, since they have a computer program that that was able to pick the catchier catchphrase a significant portion of the time, is that they should generate lots and lots of alternative dialogues in movie scripts. And they could use random permutations with a computer, or they could use 17 script doctors, or just a bunch of monkeys on typewriters, and then have the algorithm predict the catchiness of the dialogue snippets. This could be very profitable because the more catchy uh, catchphrases that you can put into the, the movie the more t-shirts you can sell so i think it's a really good idea you got to love the linguistic felicity of it all
3: yeah it's really movies are really all about the t-shirts nowadays
1: aren't they <laughs> uh, and yet i don't find myself walking around with many movie t-shirts i don't even have a single uh, a single t-shirt that says star wars on it i, I must be doing <laughs> something wrong
0: you're like the people who are actually in the study because they chose people who hadn't seen the movies to rate them, I guess because they didn't want them to... You already know what the, the catchy you, catchphrase was.
1: Are you serious? And the movie was Star Wars? They're finding people who haven't seen Star yeah. Wars? They
0: I, I wouldn't have thought this was a good idea because the catchiest catchphrases come from the most popular movies and the people who haven't seen them are probably socially defective in some way. But I guess it worked out okay. okay. from the study it seemed to have worked out okay and you gotta love the linguistic felicity of it all
1: (laughs) oh brother i'm still stuck on this t-shirt thing we don't really have these slogans on t-shirts very much i was just thinking of it was for some reason a t-shirt of indiana jones you know looking very angry with his finger pointing and then uh, it just says uh it belongs in a museum it's not, it's not
3: sure. Was that one of the memorable lines? I don't no, know. It's, sure.
1: it's, it's
2: the one I remember. It can't be because it has a third person pronoun in it.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. Maybe you, <laughs> you you belong in an museum. <laughs> I mean, I didn't didn't understand this, so they
3: said uh, the memorable things, incorporate distinctive words or phrases, and make general statements that can apply elsewhere. So I can sort of imagine a T-shirt. One of their examples was, these aren't the droids you're looking for, which, curiously, is the droids too specific, right? Right. It should have been, these aren't any droids you're looking for. But I can imagine a T-shirt that says, I'm not the droid you're looking for, something like that. Mm. Hmm. but I couldn't really imagine why they could say the phrase, these aren't the droids you're looking for, It could be applied in other contexts. You know, I mean, it's cute, but there aren't any other contexts where you need to tell someone, these aren't the droids you're looking for.
0: It actually <laughs> so, is used a lot by people who are not socially
2: defective, right, who have seen the
0: movie. <laughs> but I think they use it as an illusion.
2: Yeah, uh, well, it's a speech act to tell someone that you're exerting mind control over them. You say that to someone like, after you've told them, for example, that Burushaski is an Indo-European language, <laughs> and then they say. <laughs> Really? I, I don't know that. I don't think that's true. And then you say, these aren't the droids you're looking for, and wave your hand. And then they're supposed to believe you.
1: So, first, uh, I think the idea, though, is that if they're supposed to be general and they're supposed to generalize to other contexts, that's only true of this particular phrase because the movie is so famous, and then because people have latched onto it and are starting to use it other places. When it first began, I'm hard-pressed to imagine, you know, George Lucas thinking, all right, this line has to be good. They're going to be saying this for years now. It's probably, you know, more concerned. you know, the, the Luke, I am your father. He wanted to get that nice and simple as opposed to something like, Luke, I've given this a lot of thought, and I didn't know if I really wanted to approach this with you. But listen, I've done some tests, and it turns out that there's a very good chance that, uh, that you know, I was the one that fathered you. Uh, that's just, it doesn't have the punch. But no, these aren't the droids you're looking for. That was probably a throwaway line that now has become something of an internet phenomenon, kind of like, it's a trap!
0: I think this is why you need to go back to the, the thing I was talking about before, where you can make okay. all this alternate dialogue for your movie scripts. You could try that big, long soliloquy you had, and then Luke, I am your father, and run them through the machine and it tells
2: you which one you should pick. Ah. George Lucas is constantly tinkering with his movies, going back and redoing them, and I think you should suggest that telegraph to him as a sort of more 21st century um, because after all, Darth Vader does end up at the end to be a good guy. He tosses the Emperor down into a pit and so that makes up for... Spoiler
1: alert! Spoiler (laughs) alert! (laughs) (laughs) Makes
2: up for all the millions of people that he's killed in his life because he turned out to be, in the end he wouldn't let his son be killed. He's okay. But that being the case, maybe that dialogue was inappropriate for him and yeah, I think the computer would agree (laughs) if you ran that through and would say that this is much more memorable dialogue
3: (laughs) Uh, moving on to another area of application david this might be trade secrets that you're not allowed to give away but how are you planning to apply these insights to your own movie script writing
1: well, basically, what I do is when I'm choosing words, I look at the worldwide Twitter trending topics and see what comes <laughs> up and what continues to come up over a long period of time, and then I apply the phonological patterns that I see there, I apply them to the most common words that I use. So, you know, for example, in Defiance, the erathient word for um, have is beaver. <laughs> this will, I think, garner us a lot of attention. I can actually give you an entire sentence in a language. Bieber, Kardashian, Lakers. <laughs> and what I said there was, don't take another step or I will annihilate you. <laughs> I missed the verb.
0: <laughs> that was pretty cool. You got to love the linguistic felicity of it all.
4: Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's one additional thing about this article, though, that I think we need to call out in case it starts sneaking past too much. The primary author is trying to get away with having a triple last name. I saw that. It's it's not only Romanian. There's right. three authors. Okay, if we don't stop this now, there are going to be people with 13, like, Telugu family names, and no one will ever be able to finish saying the name of the author.
3: (laughs) I think you've made a mistake there, Bill, because actually, I think in Romanian, that thing that looks like a dash is actually a consonant symbol. (laughs) Isn't it a pharyngeal?
1: (laughs) That's certainly possible. Oh, but the thing is, though, especially for academia, if your name is long enough then you don't actually have to produce any scholarship i mean theoretically you can get to a point where your name is so long that they will never be able to finish reading it or saying it to get to the content of your paper before they die yeah there you go there you've made your bank as it were. a little
2: simpler than that if you have a big name you're a big name professor <laughs> <laughs> I think you don't want to have it so long that you couldn't
0: finish saying it but I think this triple name is about the right length where if it's in the, your references you'll see it and it will stand out and so even if you're like a very minor reference people will go, wow, I think I've seen that name a lot in references <laughs> because it's always going to jump out just because it's so big
1: Wow, kind of like the name Trey Jones in the Specgram
0: yep, you got to love the linguistic felicity of it all
1: <laughs> are you trying to create a Specgram kind of catchphrase?
4: Where did you get this phrase from,
1: Trey?
5: Unbelievable.
1: Anyway, I
0: was I was going to propose, uh, bringing it back to the actual topic of the article, I was going to propose a couple of possible names for this new field of study. Mm-hmm. Uh, one would be earwormology, or if you want to go more classic, it could be odovermology. I actually Either
4: like, way, both. I like both
0: of them. Either way, you've got to love the linguistic felicity of it all.
1: <laughs> you can take that to the pharynx. That's my attempt at a catchphrase. <laughs> Some linguists have discovered a new Indo-European language, according to no one whose reputation I respect. Apparently, the sensationalist language rags have picked up on the story and run with it. Here's how this article, in particular, starts. Professor Ilya Chaschule's discovery, which has now been verified by a number of the world's top linguists, has excited linguistics experts around the world. (laughs) Top linguists, eh? I never called me. And if you ask me, this thing isn't even close to Indo-European. But let's ask our resident IE expert, Tim Pouliou. Tim, what do you think? Is this language Brutuskaski Latin, or is it not
2: Latin? (laughs) (laughs) It's clearly not Latin. Um, Nor is it very likely to be Phrygian, despite what Professor Chasoule has written. Not just recently, the news-gathering organizations of the world seem to me to be uh, a bit slow on the uptake on this one, seeing as Chasoule has been peddling this theory for at least 10 years now, and possibly longer. I first heard of it a long time ago. I should say, in fairness to him, that I have not looked in great detail at his evidence, because it struck me as preposterously unlikely that Burashaski (laughs) is in European at all, and especially that it is closely related to Phrygian, although I admit it would be hard to tell, since we know so very little about Phrygian, that uh, you could probably prove that languages of the Philippines are closely related to Phrygian, if you had fairly lax standards of scholarship. (laughs) So, in fact, he even wrote a book on this a few years ago, which, once again, I didn't read, although I've looked at a few of his examples and find them uh, singularly unimpressive. I should point out he does have a university job, but so did Nikolai Marr, and uh, we all know how that turned out. He has gotten this article published in the latest edition of the Journal of Indo-European Studies, which is a fairly well-known journal, even though they accepted an article by me once, but... (laughs) I have not read the article itself, nor the responses to it, because my university, which was founded in 1769, does not, in fact, allow us access to the journal online, but only on paper, and it hasn't arrived at the library yet. Having said all that, I sincerely doubt that Burushaski is an Indo-European language, and as far as I can tell, no other Indo-Europeanists have been persuaded by Chasule's claims either. You know, I don't care what Tim
0: says or any other detractor, because he wants to make Burushaski a descendant of Phrygian. And that is just awesome.
2: And no matter what the detractors say, let them eat becos. <laughs> 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 I don't think he uses the word beckos, unfortunately, in his uh, claim.
3: That would definitely be convincing proof if he were able to show. Because that would really take things back quite a long ways. I have a question, though, Tim, as an Indo-Europeanist. Go against your intuitions here and just suppose that Professor Chassouli is right, that Boroshevsky is Indo-European. The house is getting a little crowded. Which language gets thrown out to make room for (laughs) Boroshevsky? I mean, should we get rid of Yiddish now or what?
2: (laughs) Indo-European is a big tent. We have room for many more languages. In fact, Sir William Jones wanted to add a Malayo-Polynesian languages into the family and various other languages, which more closed-minded modern Indo-Europeanists reject as parts of the family. And others have attempted to add Etruscan to the family. So I think there's plenty of room for new languages. Even con languages, if they have a sufficient Indo-European basis, could be added to the family, not to mention all of the Pidgins and Creoles that are based on Indo-European languages. So we're getting bigger and bigger. And if we can't add Boroshevsky to the family through historical comparative linguistics, we can turn it into an Indic Creole instead.
1: <laughs> well, listen, it, I think if Burushosky makes it in, I mean, that, that kind of opens the door even wider. Forget having any Indo-European-related vocabulary. that We'll, we'll just have something, and if we can relate it to Burushosky, using the exact same means that Chashule uses to link Burushosky to Indo-European, then, you know, by that logic, pretty much we will be back with proto-Indo-European European being proto-world, and that everything else is just related to it. I think this is very exciting. And of course, I know this is extremely exciting because in in our time at Language Made Difficult, we've seen some some really uh, outstanding science writing. But this, I think, really has to take the cake. So this is uh, the part where it mentions the Journal of Indo-European Studies. An entire issue of the eminent international linguistics journal, the Journal of Indo-European Studies, is devoted to discussions of his finding later this month. My goodness, wait, in the next, in the very next paragraph, he's word eminent again. More than 50 eminent linguists have tried over many years to determine the genetic relationship of Ruschowski.
2: I think it was 53, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. It's actually not the entire issue, either. It's um, about half of the issue. You say that, but
1: this article says the whole issue, so, I mean, I don't know, this That's one sounds true. a bit it, more it sensational. In writing. Yeah, so, yeah. And, and if it's through, on the internet, I have to believe it. So, uh, speaking of being on the internet, I wanted to learn some more about this whole issue, so I went, of course, to Wikipedia, which is the appropriate place to go for such questions, and I found that there was not very much mention made of this in the article on Burushoski, but then, and I invite you all to do this when you have some time, if you go to the talk section of the article, my, my, you get to witness, bear witness to quite an argument between um, somebody who's the main editor on this page. And then Professor Chashule himself actually jumps in here and starts arguing with him about this.
0: Wow. Oh,
1: oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. I I was trying to see if I could find a representative quote here.
0: If you're arguing in the talk page on Wikipedia, (laughs) the level of scholarship in which you're engaged has to be questioned.
4: I would like to know, because I haven't been following this at all, but it strikes me that any language that is claimed to be Phrygian, in that language you should be able to reconstruct at least 14 lexical roots that refer to different types of jaunty caps. Because, I mean, as we all know, that is the marker of Phrygian, is having a baroquely elaborated vocabulary to do a jaunty
2: Actually, well, the Phrygian liberty cap that you're speaking of is clear evidence of relationship between Phrygians and French revolutionaries in the late 1700s, since, in fact, they wore those caps uh, regularly to indicate their descent from the Phrygians. But, no, the were tended to wear turbans instead.
4: Okay. Although French does sound kind of like (laughs) Rorikoski.
2: They do both begin with labial obstruents. That's true. They're very close and they have ours.
0: Kind of like how Booster Feeding sounds like Plummerfeld. Yep, yep.
1: I almost feel bad for reading this, but so help me, I am going to read it. Okay, so this is in the talk page of the Wikipedia article. This is Ilya Chashule. I do not have the time to engage in these discussions that have little to do with scholarship, but I invite those who have called me a crackpot and a nationalist while hiding behind pseudonyms to reveal their true identity and to apologize. You can email me on iliachashule at yahoo.com. If I do not receive an apology, I will have to write officially to Wikipedia about this matter. That happened. (laughs)
0: Like I said, if you're, oh man, if you're fighting with the internet trolls on the Wikipedia talk page... You just, oh. Uh...
1: <laughs> oh, wow. Anyway, you know what I was trying to pull up, but I did actually find some of the correspondences that were being made there. And honestly, to me, they did seem a little thin, uh, as in, you know, like the word for X could be theoretically related to a mythology where this happens in some s- distantly related culture, uh, as opposed to, you know, a direct correspondence. And then even the, the phonological similarity wasn't as close. But one thing I discovered was one of the main groups that were were opposed to the inclusion of Bruchoski as Indo-European were themselves making arguments for proto-world. You know, that's kind of like, you don't want to have a crazy person stand up and defend you. Uh, That that almost lent (laughs) credence to Bruchoski. It seems like Bruchoski is closer to Indo-European than they were to proto-world.
2: Yeah, no, (laughs) even though I think uh, John Bengston has written about this, that may be who you're referring to. Even if Bengston is wrong about Borisovsky and Yeniseian, that doesn't mean he's wrong about Borisovsky not being (laughs) Indo-European. That's true, that's true. I suddenly had a, a thought here.
0: You know how in syntax class, everybody has that problem where you hear some uh, ungrammatical construction so many times in the mm. class that it's start, you sort of get used to it. It, so, it sort of seems to be okay, and you maybe use it jokingly, and next thing you know, you're socially defective. But I wonder if people who do comparative, <laughs> these kind of comparative studies, if they start off, they look at, at semantic drift, and they just sort of get used to the fact that words aren't exactly aligned, right? And so you have, in one language, you have leg, in another language, you have knee, and well, that's okay, right? And so instead of this being a little bit different over time, this sort of comes to be the standard level of difference. And then it drifts a little bit more and like, well, leg and body. Okay, well, that's all right. And then next thing you know, you're saying leg and pig snout. You're like, yeah, sure, I could see that. I, I could see how you could just sort of become desensitized to the, the width of the semantic drift over time. And maybe that's what leads to this kind of craziness.
4: We call that the Greenberg phenomena.
0: Yeah, <laughs>
4: yes. Or, yeah, uh, in, in particularly severe cases, people in up thinking that a word, for example, that means brain damaged could end up meaning pleasant.
2: <laughs> well, the problem, of course, is that it could, <laughs> given <Sick>. enough time.
4: <laughs> well, yeah, I'm sure you could find a nice example of that, but I don't know how common it would be. Okay, I have an example for you, and this one didn't even work for me,
1: but apparently the Black Eyed Peas have this song that is called let's get retarded. And that's actually the refrain, let's get retarded. And you're like, what on earth is the thinking here? And the idea is that if, if you were stupid, you're not worrying about anything, so let us all become this slang term for brain damage. And that actually meant something good.
2: It's actually the theory, unfortunately, behind lobotomies, right? was that <laughs> people who had problems and one way to make them happier would be to lobotomize them.
0: I actually thought that the song was more along the lines of what Tim was saying, except you would do it with alcohol. I always assumed that the ah, idea was that to get oh, retarded or brain damage. Yeah, was mm. to to get pretty drunk.
1: Okay, well uh, that also makes sense. That also makes sense.
4: I never saw it in print, so I thought they just meant that they were going to get all tarted up again because
1: <laughs> <laughs> they're going to go out of the town as streetwalkers. No. Got it.
4: Yeah. Okay,
1: well, anyway, I think we've come to the conclusion that uh, Berushaski is likely not Indo-European. It is potentially a conlang, and therefore it is probably (laughs) a resident of proto-world. If it was a conlang, it was probably a conlang created by Indo-European speakers who were looking for something different. That is a theory that I'd be willing to write an article about. We have more LMD coming up, but first, a word from our sponsor.
3: Language Made Difficult is brought to you by... The Nordic Journal of Avian Languages of the Southern Hemisphere. The Nordic Journal is proud to support Speculative Grammarian and reminds listeners everywhere that we need your article contributions because, as the saying goes, birds of a feather publish together.
1: And we're back. The past two weeks on Specgram, we've had the pleasure of having Tim you with us. It's not often we have a guest with us that holds Trey's power of attorney, so we thought we'd take a moment to speak with Tim about Tim. Uh, so, Tim, thanks for agreeing to this. You're welcome. So, uh, Tim works in the linguistics program at Dartmouth, and then also is housed within Classics, and has a somewhat tenuous relationship to cognitive science as well. He does it all. And he recently gave a TEDx talk at Dartmouth about language. But more importantly, Certainly he's one of the few people to hold the key to the Specram executive bathroom the one that has the toilet with a toilet seat on it so tim tell us about why you've risked your reputation your job and your life penning articles for Specram over the years
2: well first i'd like to say that we refer to it as the executive washroom not the executive bathroom uh, that's why i don't have the key Yes. <laughs> uh, aside from that I think we're all aware that writing for specgram is one of the most lucrative sorts of writing that a linguist can do. One of the best ways to earn money from your articles, speculative grammarian pays a much higher rate than other journals such as Studies in Language or linguistics or even uh, language, which is a journal that I just heard about from Keith a couple of weeks ago. So that's the primary reason. But also, it does appear that some of my more uh, groundbreaking research has been rejected by some of the more staid journals. Which, in fact, is why I had a significant part in founding uh, some of the sister publications of Specular Grammarian, which have been purchased as Specular Grammarian has grown from a small, out-of-the-way, but uh, high-class journal into the international conglomerate that we know today. (laughs) What was the first one? Was it Lingua Pranca? Lingua Pranca actually is older uh, even than I am. Well, perhaps not older, but older than I am as a linguist. That was founded by other linguists when I was still in elementary school, probably. And I knew nothing about it, but when Keith Slater and I were students at Michigan State University, there was a time for no apparent reason when I decided to throw our good friend Ross Wagner out of the Honors College because he was too short. So uh, we wrote him a letter doing that, and that was kind of enjoyable. Ross, by the way, is a professor of Greek nowadays, so being expelled from the Honors College unofficially did not harm his career. Um, Then I put together a little flyer and distributed it in the linguistics department, announcing a symposium on the topic Chomsky, Man or Myth. (laughs) <laughs> this it was particular, meeting. It was, it was to be held, I believe, in the Savonarola Memorial Cathedral in Lansing, Michigan, with bowling to follow. And we passed it around, and I do recall one of the staff, not one of the professors there, who picked up a copy and was gravely concerned that there was no date mentioned for this upcoming colloquium. <laughs> awesome. um, that prompted a fellow student of ours named Wotak Ng, to put together his own flyer. This was 1988, a flyer saying Chomsky trailing in presidential race. And that prompted Keith to say that we should start a journal, which we called Semanticist Quarterly, That sort of got the ball rolling. Out of that, uh, various other journals were born, and eventually Speculative Grammarian came into being, or I should say that we restarted Speculative Grammarian after it had been shut down for a few years by, no doubt, hostile press or hurricanes or something else, since, as we all know, Speculative Grammarian goes back to at least the... 13th century and more likely to the 9th century and possibly uh, farther back we're still researching.
1: <laughs> so Trey, how exactly did you get into this? Like how did you eventually meet up with Tim? I was
0: an indentured servant at Rice University where uh, Tim was a what was it a second tier slave master and it turned out that my housing unit was right next to his palatial mansion uh, where he stayed and One day, he was about to throw me into a pit, and I said, what if I could say something humorous about linguistics, and he said, I'll let you live five minutes longer, and we've gone from there.
2: (laughs) And he said enough humorous things that he actually has 45 minutes of time banked up.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. And so now we're on the air and live here. You can can go ahead and tell us, Tim, what you really thought of Trey. Like, I know that you and I were discussing this earlier, just uh, before Trey came on, that uh, really, you were just kind of humoring him that this whole time he hasn't actually said anything funny about linguistics. Is this true?
2: Trey, as you know, is a direct descendant of Sir William Jones. And so our primary reason for adding him to the editorial board to begin with was that the prestige of speculative grammarian had fallen a fair bit, mostly after we allowed Bill onto the board. And so we wanted to raise it up. So everyone knew Trey because he had business cards that said direct descendant of Jones on them (laughs) And so it was well-known in the linguistic community, and so we thought it would be good to have him on board. Uh, What we did not know was that, like Sir William Jones, he has a genius for taking power for himself. Uh, (laughs) Sir William Jones, when he first went to India, did not go as a judge, but as a cabin boy. And yet he rose up to the position of chief magistrate of Bengal within a few years through the same sort of techniques, which I'm not going to mention on the air, that Trey managed to use. And there are very good reasons why none of us would dare to cross Trey now. But it's turned out to be good because, unlike me, Trey actually knows how to turn on a computer, and so he managed to put uh, speculative grammarian online, whatever that means. I I don't really understand the meaning of this modern terminology, and that apparently has increased its uh, influence in the world of linguistics.
1: (laughs) So Trey is a legacy. I would expect nothing less from a private institution like speculative (laughs) grammarian.
3: Actually, Trey's full name is Sir William Jones. The third.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a little bit embarrassing when my first name is actually
2: Sir.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! And so people actually have to call you Sir, Sir. Hmm?
2: Indeed, <laughs> it's actually, Lord Sir. Um, he received a baronage last year.
1: <laughs> oh wow! How are you? very, excellent for you. Those of us who went to Specgram State, of course, uh, yeah. come from such uh, such royal trappings, as it were. Now that you are the editor emeritus, uh, or the pro-editor emeritus, I forget your, your full and complete title of speculative grammarian, what
2: interest do you have in the future state? of the publication,
1: I always say.
2: I have a considerable financial interest since my pension comes from Speculative Gumerian, and if it goes out of business, then my pension goes away. Also, I still have a nice office. on the When I was forcibly retired by action of the board, I did manage to <laughs> work out a deal where I was able to keep a nice corner office, which has a very comfortable couch in it. And I find that a very useful place to go to hide from my wives and grandchildren and even children. Those of them, many of my grandchildren spend the time at one or another of my house's I find it advisable to have more than one house since some of my wives don't get along too well. But as I've aged, I find it preferable to have some sort of peace and quiet. And as you well know, there is generally very little going on at Specgram headquarters. It's a nice, calm, peaceful sort of place. Occasional janitors going through sweeping up here and there. And a few interns maybe being sacrificed to the gods. But aside from that, it's a nice place to take a nap. So those are my two main concerns. I go there for peace and quiet and also for my pension. (laughs)
1: Well, you have uh, contributed much to the field of satirical linguistics. For that, we are, of course, forever grateful. It's both an honor and a pleasure to have you here to graciously share the uh, executive washroom key with us,
2: Uh, right? I'm sorry. That's up to uh, Editor-in-Chief Jones. And he's told me that there's no way that you're getting that washroom key until you return the Buick that you stole from him last year.
1: I needed the Buick because I wanted to drive to Atlantic City because I heard there was gambling there. Isn't that enough?
2: It is for me. Oh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we were going to give you a key, but it turns out that due to the continuing pace of technology, it's impossible to make copies of them now. <laughs> So you'll have to wait until someone who currently has one dies.
1: Oh, boy. And with that cheering notion. Thanks again for joining us, Tim. That's all the time we have on Language Made Difficult. Join us next time when we talk about the linguistic phenomena in Twilight, Justin Bieber, Fifty Shades of Grey, Jersey Shore, American Idol, Cake Boss, The Bachelorette, The X Factor, and The Hunger Games. Thanks for listening. So that we can get the actual science out of the way and get to the jokes.
4: Just as a general move, it doesn't matter what the language is, you can always play the Etruscan card. To uh, graciously. Blah, blah, blah. Now
1: for uh, some actual news which isn't news. Or is it actual. Wait, actual news that isn't news or news that isn't actual news? <laughs> so, um, anyway, we have more LDNL. <laughs> no, we don't. I'm not sure. I can
0: edit around the. in the middle.
1: And he's a by in a stairway up to um to um to um